Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 35 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hi, good. I'm ready for our last episode of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the Christmas beverages, by the way. <laughs> no worries. Knock um, off knock off froths. <laughs> <laughs> as encouraged by my husband. <laughs> yeah, appreciated. Some Bolter XPAs there. Yeah, not sponsored. Yeah, not sponsored <laughs> at all. And they've actually sold out. Yeah. You were telling me today. Yeah, they have. Yeah. No longer indie, which breaks the small group of craft beer lovers' hearts. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is not about crime today, but small <laughs> to medium enterprise <laughs> businesses. So <laughs> uh, we've got some more Patreon supporters or supporter, should I say, Chloe? Yeah, we do. Thank you and welcome to Karen Bennett. It's all for you this week, Karen. Thank you very much. Today we're talking about the Monash University shooting. And this is a devastating case, our last one for the year, as you said, Chloe. Sad on a couple of levels, and it's also complex. Not so much in the crime itself, but in the issues surrounding it. And this case was interesting in the sense that high school or college shootings are not something that we really have here in Australia. It's definitely something we would associate more so with the USA. It's almost every second week we seem to hear about one over there. And again, like last week, this wasn't an obscure case. It certainly made headlines at the time. Some will know it and some won't. But it's not one that's been widely covered in the media since in recent times and certainly not in podcast form. The unnerving thing about these types of cases is the setting. I think most of us envisage a calm and positive environment when we think about an educational institution. And I'm sure there are probably teachers laughing at that comment with the chaos they deal with on a daily basis. Yes, exactly. But the point being that there's a common goal, right? People are there to learn, often by choice, particularly when you're talking about uh, tertiary education. And there's meant to be an environment fostering learning and, and creativity in many respects. But unfortunately, no matter what the setting, there's always people who don't feel that way for whatever reason, frustration, loss, ineffective or inhibited communication, they don't feel the warmth, they just feel the cold. And as we'll see in today's case, you throw in a few other factors such as mental health, stress, paranoia and delusions, well, things start to get a whole lot more complicated and dangerous. Twenty first of October, two thousand and two, Monash University, Clayton, Victoria. After the class of twelve had filed in and taken their seats, lecturer Lee Gordon Brown handed back an assignment that students had recently completed. He began the class with a discussion, writing a question on the board for everyone to ponder. This was a day like any other for the econometrics lecturer and his class of honours students, all working hard in their postgrad studies to attain a higher standard of education to further their respective future careers. Around 20 minutes into the class, at 11.25am, things took a sudden and horrific turn inside room E659 of the Menzies building. 
Alan, seated at the rear of the classroom, jumped up with both of his arms outstretched and screamed at the top of his lungs, you never understand me. What happened next would change the lives of every single person in that room forever. Wan Yung Zhang was born in 1966 in China. Wan would go on to be known as Alan when he eventually moved to Australia, so we'll refer to him as that throughout. We don't know a whole lot about Alan's childhood in China, but what we do know is that he completed his schooling and went on to complete a medical degree in acupuncture. Not long after this, tragedy struck when Alan's father died from bone marrow cancer, leaving behind Alan and his mother, Zhu Kuang. The loss of his father clearly had a marked impact on Alan as a young man, as it would most people, I imagine. While working in his acupuncture clinic one day, Alan attempted to take his own life. His mother would later say this may have been a psychiatric episode, and while we're not psychologists, one has to wonder if the trauma of losing his father contributed to this. Whatever the case, Alan and his mother moved to Australia in 1996 when he was aged 30 and looked for a fresh start. A few years later, in 1999, Alan enrolled in a Bachelor of Commerce at Monash University. Monash University is a research and tertiary education institution. It's very highly regarded nationally and indeed internationally, attracting many local and international students. It's primarily based in Victoria, with four main campuses, Clayton, Caulfield, Peninsula and Parkville. Clayton being the largest of these and where Alan would attend. By October 2002, Alan was a fourth-year honours student at Monash while living in an apartment opposite the university with his mother. Neighbours, classmates and tutors described him as quiet, polite, intelligent and committed, but struggled with English and communication with others due to having a thick accent and a tendency to speak quickly. Others described Alan as being a loner who would not engage in conversation with others, possibly tying back to his communication troubles, and his mother said at times he had a short temper. So this aspect, especially for a dedicated student and by all accounts an intelligent young man, may have well frustrated Alan at times. Indeed, there were murmurs throughout the student body and faculty throughout 2002 that Alan had become quite paranoid, gruff and abrupt, and even mumbled to himself regularly. And I think we've all seen people like that. While it can be off-putting in some instances, there's often genuine reasons for it that don't necessarily warrant concern. But Alan's paranoia was seemingly increasing, with reports of statements from him such as, they're trying to kill me, and they hate me, being heard as part of some of these aforementioned mumblings. Alan actually emailed one of his lecturers, a man named Lee Gordon Brown, about his concerns that other students in the class were talking behind his back. Lee responded to Alan, assuring him that they weren't, and Alan appeared satisfied by that. He was seemingly more at ease after this, as far as Lee could tell. Lee Gordon Brown had been a lecturer at Monash University since July 1995, some seven years by October of 2002, He taught in the econometrics field and had some research published in the area, so he was an accomplished professional. Lee was also one of the few faculty members who wore a tie to work. The old necktie isn't the men's business accessory it once was. There's many more open necks around the traps these days, smart casual, but not Lee. He wore a tie, dress business when doing business, and he was proud of that. And while this might seem like a strange thing to focus on, the necktie becomes an important factor later on. On the 21st of October 2002, Lee was preparing to teach his econometrics class like any other day. The class was being held in room E659, which is in the East Wing, Level 6 of the Menzies Building. This building was named after former Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies. It's one of the tallest buildings on the Monash Clayton campus, spanning over 12 floors, including a basement, which are full of tutorial rooms, offices, amenities, meeting rooms, theatres and study spaces. It's likely that the class that morning commenced around 5 past 11. Classes at Monash started and ended five minutes past the hour in this time. 
Alan was the first of Lee Gordon Brown's 12 students to arrive that morning and he took his usual seat in the back of the classroom. After the other 10 students entered and took their seats, the final student who arrived was a young man named Alastair Boast. He took the final seat left towards the front of the classroom and closed the door behind him. Alastair was completing his postgraduate diploma in econometrics. He'd recently completed his Bachelor of Science with honours, majoring in mathematics and statistics, so this additional diploma would supplement that. Alastair was a big guy, around 195 centimetres tall, but a laid-back, gentle giant and a modest chap by all accounts. He was a part-time tutor at this time, and despite his gentle nature, Alastair was an avid Wing Chun Kung Fu practitioner. In fact, he was the secretary of the Monash Kung Fu Club. Lecturer Lee Gordon Brown first handed back an assignment that students had recently completed and began the class with a discussion, writing a question on the whiteboard for everyone to ponder. Around 20 minutes into the class, at 11.25am, things took a sudden and horrific turn inside room E659 of the Monash Menzies building. Alan, seated at the rear of the classroom, jumped up with both of his arms outstretched and screamed at the top of his lungs, you'll never understand me, before opening fire with a black CZ-75 9mm handgun. As the sharp bangs reverberated around the room, students screamed and instinctively hit the floor, seeking cover under desks and curling up in fetal positions. Alastair, Lee and the rest of the students didn't realise what was happening at first, the shock and adrenaline no doubt setting in immediately as Alan continued to discharge the pistol around the room. At first Lee thought the noise had come from a nearby construction site, but pretty quickly that thought went away when he saw a shell casing on the floor nearby and then he realised he'd been shot in his thigh and arms. Alastair, from his position on the ground at the front of the room, looked up and saw Alan at the back. In addition to the CZ pistol he had fired 16 shots from by this point, Alan also had on him a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum revolver, a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver, a Beretta 89-22, a Beretta Tomcat 32 caliber, and a 40 caliber Taurus handgun, six guns in total. It was reported in one source that he was also carrying a knife. As Alan emptied the clip and began reaching into his jacket for one of his other handguns, an injured Lee Gordon Brown advanced on Alan and grabbed his hands in an attempt to stop him. Alistair saw this and instinctively got up from his position and advanced on Alan as well, tackling and restraining him. Alan wriggled a couple of times but didn't really resist, saying to his lecturer, please don't kill me, Lee, as a significantly larger Alistair pinned him down with Lee's help. Some students had managed to escape from the room, fleeing amidst the chaos, but Alastair and Lee could see that three remained. One student named Laurie Brown was wounded in the leg and abdomen, but was still alive and would go on to survive. The two others, tragically, wouldn't be so lucky. 26-year-olds William Wu and Stephen Chan, unfortunately, were both killed instantly when Alan's shooting rampage began. And we don't really have much information about these two victims, Chloe. We generally like to talk about them so they're not just a statistic, but for whatever reason, there's just not much public information about the pair. And that could be for a number of reasons. The wishes of surviving family members, for one, which is completely understandable. What we do know is that Stephen Chan was a student who lived in the Doncaster area, and William Wu was an international student. He was a citizen of the People's Republic of China and a resident of Hong Kong. But importantly, when factoring this case, he was a neighbour of Alan Jang's. And we'll talk more about that element a little later. But at this point, we had lecturer Lee Gordon Brown and student Alistair Boast holding Alan down inside the room. Lee was shot and injured, as was another student, Laurie Brown. Steve Chan and William Wu were deceased, in some reports still sitting in their chairs, in others on the floor. Brett Inder, another lecturer in the Econometrics and Business Statistics Department at Monash, was speaking with a colleague down the hall when he heard the loud bangs. Like Lee, he too thought it was noisy builders at first, but soon realised it wasn't when he saw the panic in the corridor and heard someone yell, he's got a gun. The bangs and commotion all happened pretty quickly, 
these things moving very fast in real time, as I'm sure we can imagine. Brett went down the hall towards room E659 and quickly saw his friend and colleague Lee Gordon Brown and student Alastair Boast holding Alan Zhang down on the ground at the back of the classroom. Brett quickly asked a colleague in the corridor to call the police before going back inside the room, something he didn't want to do, understandably, but did regardless. Brett saw the two victims, Stephen and William, and he could smell the gunpowder in the room, so it was obvious to him what had occurred. Lee said to Brett as he approached that he was losing his strength holding Alan down and asked if Brett could take over. Brett didn't realise Lee had been shot at this point. Alistair could largely hold Alan down by himself, but as Brett relieved Lee to give him a break and Alistair some assistance, Lee collapsed on the ground beside him. I don't think he went unconscious as he and Brett continued to talk while emergency services responded, but at some point we know that Lee's necktie was used as a makeshift tourniquet to stem the bleeding and ultimately assisted in saving his life. So think about that, guys. The next time you're considering going open neck, abandoning the silky formal wear, maybe reconsider slipping on that bad boy with a subtle half Windsor because it just might save your life. So obviously things were very tense inside the room. Brett mainly tried to keep everyone calm as another couple of colleagues funneled into the room to provide assistance. Another lecturer from nearby named Bradley Thompson helped to disarm Alan while nurse and administrator Colin Thornby provided first aid to those injured and in shock. Another student named Andrew Swan also rendered first aid assistance. Alan kept babbling. That was all he could do while they kept him restrained, awaiting police to arrive. He wasn't difficult to manage or resisting at all, as we said, and Brett mostly tried to reassure him that it was all okay and would be over shortly, to just sit and wait. It took police 30 minutes to arrive, it was reported, which seems like a long response time to me. Clayton is not a remote location. There'd be police stations within a few kilometres of the Monash campus there, but the details of that aren't super clear. There could have been mitigating factors in that scenario. Yeah, and another point I wanted to just mention here, it was actually my wife who pointed this out when she was reading this the other night, campus security. Now, I know we don't have like campus police here, like in the US, but even back in the early 2000s, I thought they would have had campus security of some kind. And they mightn't have engaged the gunman, sure, but they would have been able to go in thereafter and maybe help restrain him until police arrived, instead of that being left to a a pair of lecturers and a student. Anyway, that was just more of a wondering on my part. Yeah, well, whatever the case, the surrounding area of the Monash campus was in complete terror at this time. There were numerous conflicting stories flying around amongst the panicked students and staff, that there was a gunman, he'd killed people, he was running around and there was a sniper on the roof of the Menzies building. Escalators were clogged up as people tried to flee, and many people, including staff, opted to leave the grounds after the police arrived. Classes were obviously cancelled for the remainder of the day. Police arrived finally, assessed the scene, and took Alan into custody. The official list of victims is as follows. William Wu and Stephen Chan, both 26 as we said, deceased from gunshot wounds, Lee Gordon Brown, shot in the arm and knee. Daniel Erbach, who was a student, wounded in the shoulder and arm. Laurie Brown, who we've mentioned, wounded in the leg and abdomen. Christy Young, another student, shot in the face. And finally, Lee Dat Hyun, also suffered injuries and was discharged from hospital within 24 hours. So a tragic event, Chloe, that had a marked effect on many people and their families, We'll touch more on that aspect a bit later on, but we've also got some pretty brave and heroic actions here from the likes of Alastair Boast and Lee Gordon Brown immediately post-shooting and from those who rendered assistance thereafter, the likes of Brett Inder, Brad Thompson, Colin Thornby and Andrew Swan. So we really wanted to emphasise that aspect too.
Alan Jan wasn't fit to be interviewed that day, police determined, but he would later write in a statement and the police would find corroborating notes around this in his home, words to the effect of, I finally ended WW's life. Just pick up a gun, kill those WWs until there is no WW in the world anymore. To kill WWs is the responsibility defined in my destiny. Another report also said Alan wrote a note expressing his displeasure at the prospect of tightening gun controls in Australia at the time. Searches of Alan's property also located a box of ammunition, two more Beretta pistols, holsters and firearm cleaning equipment. It was also discovered in the time before the shooting that Alan had been a member of the Sporting Shooters Association for the past 12 months or so. So he'd gotten his handgun licence after this and acquired several of these firearms from different locations around Melbourne by legal means. Records indicated he'd attended target practice nearly 40 times in the months leading up to the shooting. When it comes to the question of why, I'm not sure that's something we're ever going to be 100% clear on. As we'll see, Alan's mental state is going to be a major factor in the trial and aftermath of this horrific event. But you have to ask what the statements referring to WWs might mean. An obvious interpretation ties back to William Wu, one of the two deceased victims. William's girlfriend later stated that she believed Alan was jealous of her boyfriend. She said that William often helped Alan with assignments, but at some point Alan just stopped talking to William. She said Alan always thought William was smarter and harder working, and I think he was jealous of him. This assessment would later tie in with reports of Alan's increasing paranoia and anger when at trial, forensic psychiatrist Doug Bell asserted that Alan believed William was plotting to destroy him academically. He thought William was plotting to have him killed and believed William represented the evil of the world. Alan fronted the magistrate's court on the 22nd of October 2002 where he was remanded. He didn't apply for bail or speak during proceedings. The trial took place in the Supreme Court of Victoria in June of 2004 and the prosecution and defence would both end up agreeing, something we don't see very often, and they agreed that Alan was suffering from a paranoid delusional disorder. He was charged with two counts of murder and five of attempted murder and the jury took only half an hour to reach a verdict of not guilty by reason of mental impairment. Justice Teague ordered Alan to be detained in a secure psychiatric facility for 25 years. He was admitted to the Thomas Embling Psychiatric Hospital a short time later. And we'll talk a bit more about Alan's time here a little later on, but the effect this shooting had on those involved and the broader community was huge. It left a lasting impression, no doubt. Monash University set up counselling stations for staff and students. They also copped some heat too, like we said. It wasn't unnoticed or in a surprise to many that Alan was the perpetrator of this crime. There'd been warning signs. But as lecturer Brett Inder pointed out, this wasn't something they knew how to interpret at the time. These school shootings are far more commonplace in the USA. We don't really see things like that here in Australia, as we said in the introduction. So I think that view, particularly back then in the late 90s, early 2000s, is understandable. Monash flew flags at half-mast, Floral tributes and messages of sympathy were prevalent in the time after the shooting. One such line was spray-painted on a campus billboard. It read, Life is short, cherish your friends, love one another, RIP. A memorial service was held at Monash for Stephen Chan and William Wu, which nearly 200 people attended. The pair were posthumously awarded honours degrees. And here we get to hear some positive things about the pair. William was said to be a brilliant student with distinctions in every subject. He was described as tall, quiet and courteous, a real gentleman. William had completed his initial four-year degree in just three years by overloading and completing summer classes in an attempt to get back home to see his family sooner. But this also meant he hadn't been home to see them for the past three years. So that was very sad to hear that they hadn't seen one another recently prior to this happening. Stephen Chan was described as a great bloke, a true blue Aussie, despite only arriving in Australia when he was 10 years of age. He was an extrovert, enthusiastic, and interested in helping alleviate economic equality after his studies. Thousands of yellow roses and lit candles were laid as a tribute to the two students. 
So the two families of Stephen and William obviously had a whole lot of grieving to do after this, and the other injured victims, who luckily escaped with their lives, they still had their own recoveries too. But the emotional scars cut deep as well. While it was back to business for many at Monash, the likes of Lee Gordon-Brown, Alastair Boast and Brett Inder, who were all either on the front line or there immediately after the attack, had a hard time adjusting and getting back to life the way it was after this. Alistair went back to the tutorial room a few days later and replayed the events over in his mind. The what-ifs can be crippling in situations like this, and for months after the incident, Alistair was plagued by these replaying of events in his mind and overcome by bouts of sadness and loss. He also had to talk through events with everyone. People wanted to know what happened and how it all happened. So Alistair found himself constantly going over and over the whole story again and again. But where they might bring a person, perhaps not as mentally strong as Alistair down, it only served to help him through it and deal with the issues and re-evaluate what was really important in his life. Brett Inder struggled to sleep for some time after the shooting. He was stressed and exhausted in the time thereafter, but he soldiered on and continued teaching. Many of his students commented on how they could see the effects on him, but he did extremely well to work through it, to show up and keep on lecturing as he did. Brett is actually the deputy department head now at Monash, and there's still reminders for him every day of what happened back in 2002, albeit dulled from the initial rawness back at the time. But the images that he must have seen upon entering that room would be a very difficult thing to cope with. He did an amazing job of helping and keeping that level of calm in a very tense situation. Lee Gordon-Brown has proven more elusive in the research. We're not entirely sure he's still at Monash. His LinkedIn profile states he is, but he's not currently listed in the staff directory there. He was more quiet in the media after the attack too. Not a lot of Lee talking about things out there. If he hears this by some chance and wants to talk one day, please drop us a line, Lee. But to suffer the injuries he did and really lead that charge and be the guy that moved to the front of the classroom towards the guy with all the guns firing bullets, I don't know how to sum up the actions of someone like that. Brave, obviously, selfless, but the use of the necktie to me was the real MacGyver moment, so kudos to him on that. Yes, absolutely. In 2005, it was reported that the families of Stephen Chan and William Wu brought a multi-million dollar negligence claim against Monash University. This claim was compensation essentially for emotional distress and being unable to work and earn a living after the loss of their loved ones in such a devastating fashion. The complaint cited that Monash failed to protect their sons, provide adequate security for students, stop students bringing guns onto the campus, and deal with Alan Zhang's mental state when it presented itself. Monash University did not admit liability, however an article a few years later in 2009 indicated that the case had been settled to the satisfaction of all concerned, but no amounts were confirmed due to confidentiality agreements in place. So as we said, Alan has been in the Thomas Embling Psychiatric Hospital since 2004. Things remained quiet for him there for just over 10 years and until 2015, when on the 20th of October, Alan stabbed a female doctor in the neck three times with a paring knife. Apparently the doctor, she's unidentified, known only as Dr XY in court records, was reading something Alan had given her when he attacked, stabbing her neck and then hand twice as she reached for her neck trying to stem the bleeding. She took off as he would and Alan gave chase with the knife, intent on stabbing her again until he was restrained by another staff member. Alan had gotten the knife from the kitchen in the Jardine ward. Apparently he'd been moved to this lower security ward from higher security just six months earlier. Obviously they thought he was improving somewhat, but clearly he wasn't. Turns out Alan was still very much suffering from paranoid and delusional thoughts. He believed the doctor was conspiring against him to have his privileges removed and was restricting him from contacting William Wu's family, and he thought she was working for the Chinese and US governments spying on him. So Alan was formally diagnosed after this as having chronic paranoid schizophrenia. The Thomas Embling Hospital has had its share of incidents over the years, both before and since too. 
In 2008, there was a double murder there when a patient gained access to a knife. There's been talk of under-resourcing and safety concerns for staff, illicit drugs, contraband and weaponry being smuggled into the facility. And by and large, the offenders are charged. Like Alan was, he got seven years for this to be served concurrently, but they're simply returned to the same hospital as there's no viable alternative. And now we get to the ever-popular topic of gun laws and gun law reform. In response to this incident, then-Prime Minister John Howard stated that he was alarmed at the number of automatic handguns circulating in Australia and would call a meeting with state leaders for further gun law reforms. Victorian Premier Steve Brax, however, had voiced that he was against bans on possessing handguns as Victoria already had the most restrictive gun laws in the country Instead, he opted to support harsher penalties for firearm-related offences. Reverend Tim Costello, who was the spokesperson for the National Coalition for Gun Control, supported the ban of semi-automatic handguns. He stated that most mass shootings in the Western world were carried out by licensed shooters. A shooters group estimated that there were 60,000 automatic handguns in circulation in Australia at the time, while the National Coalition for Gun Control estimated 300,000. After the Port Arthur massacre in 1996, Prime Minister John Howard implemented laws that banned semi-automatic and automatic firearms and also restricted the types of guns allowed for sporting shooters. The buyback scheme cost more than $315 million but removed 643,238 guns in circulation. Implementing gun laws was not easy. The first time round after Port Arthur was met with strong protests and marches from both sides. John Howard had been in office for less than two months when he pushed for the reforms. At one of his addresses to gun owners, he was photographed wearing a bulletproof vest under his suit. This was heavily criticised by the media, and he later said it was silly and he regretted doing so. After these reforms, the impact was immediate. The Australasian Institute of Criminology reported that homicides fell by 10% and proportion of armed robberies using firearms fell by 37%. However, there was an increased usage of handguns in firearm-related homicides, up from 14 to 37%. A study commissioned by Gun Control Australia in 2017 showed that none of the states fully complied with the National Firearms Agreement and had weakened its gun laws since the agreement was introduced. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So we mentioned the Port Arthur massacre just before, which was the catalyst for these reforms and remains the worst mass shooting in Australian modern history. On the 28th of April 1996 in Port Arthur, Tasmania, Martin Bryant, after eating at a cafe, opened fire at people in the area, including shop owners and tourists. He used two semi-automatic weapons and 35 people were killed and 23 injured. Bryant didn't provide a reason for why he committed this terrifying spree, but ultimately pleaded guilty in court, where he was sentenced to 35 life sentences without the possibility of parole. So that's a synopsis of our most well-known, but there's also been lesser known. In 1999, there was a shooting at La Trobe University's Bandura campus. On the 3rd of August 1999, at around 5 past 11 in the morning, 38-year-old Jonathan Brett Horrocks, who was also an honour student, opened fire inside a campus restaurant called the Eagle Bar, and he had a 38 caliber revolver. He killed the restaurant manager, Leon Capraro, and wounded another female patron who was age 17. Horrocks had previously worked part-time at that restaurant, 
but was recently fired by the manager for allegedly stealing alcohol. He was sentenced to life with a 23-year non-parole period. We also have the notorious Hoddle Street Massacre of 1987. Julian Knight, 19 years old at the time, was a former Australian Army officer cadet. He killed six people and wounded 19 others that were driving on Hoddle Street in Clifton Hill, Victoria, on the 9th of August, 1987. After a night of drinking, Knight positioned himself at the corner of Ramsden and Hoddle Street and proceeded to open fire at passing cars and, at the end of it, attempted to flee, however was caught by the police and surrendered. But the instances of shootings and mass shootings here in Australia pale in comparison to those we see all too frequently on the news in the USA. Unlike the United States of America, the Australian Constitution does not contain a Bill of Rights. The Constitution states what kind of laws the federal government can and cannot make. The Second Amendment of the United States Constitution states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. There has been considerable debate over the meaning and scope of this wording. However, it's been largely interpreted as a right to possess weapons for self-defence. Gun ownership is also significantly higher in America. A survey conducted by the Pew Research Centre in the US found that about 4 in 10 US adults live in a gun-owning household. An article published on the 1st of October 2019 states that there have been at least 21 deadly mass shootings in the US so far in 2019. This means one every 15 days on average. This has resulted in 124 people being killed. Compared to the same period in 2018, there were 14 deadly mass shootings. But tightening of gun laws and comparisons to the USA when pointing them out is all good and well, but I think in fairness, there's another angle to look at in this case, and that's mental illness and social problems. Alan Jang was found not guilty by reason of mental impairment, as we said, and we've touched on that before in the Derek Percy case, Chloe but I thought we'd take a minute to just examine it a little closer from a legal standpoint. Not that either of us are anything close to resembling a lawyer, but it's an interesting point to touch on briefly. Mental impairment is a defence under Section 20 of the Crimes Act 1997. It means either the person did not know the nature and quality of the conduct or the person did not know the conduct was wrong. Therefore, if mental impairment is established, a person must be found not guilty of the offence. An examination of mental health and the criminal justice system conducted by the Australian Parliament found that there is an overrepresentation of people with mental illnesses in the criminal justice system. This means that most people with mental illness do not commit crimes, but the incidence of mental illness among the people who come before the courts is higher than that of the general community. Parliament lists several factors that could contribute to this, including general disadvantage, poverty, homelessness, unemployment, deinstitutionalisation, substance abuse, lack of early intervention and lack of mental health services in the community. There have been criticisms by some parties that the media and government were quick to frame the Monash University shooting as a gun issue rather than a social issue. A journal article that examined the media construction of this incident was written by Meron Wandermagen. It argued that this could have been framed as a mental health problem which would highlight the need for better mental health services. However, it was overshadowed by the firearm violence issue by the media. Again, something you've mentioned as a relevant point in a previous episode, Chloe. A feeling of isolation and hopelessness could have contributed to Alan's mental illness and delusions. It appears that he wasn't undergoing treatment for schizophrenia and that he hadn't been diagnosed previously. It is possible to obtain counselling services at Monash University, however it is unlikely catered towards international students. The solution to this incident was tightening gun laws, However, there was no discussion or inquiry into the social issues and mental health. Finally, we have the issue of a high proportion of international students at universities in Australia. And we're on the fence if this final point was worth covering, but we try to present everything fairly with what's been reported, Chloe, so again, we'll touch on it briefly as it came up at the time and again recently. The reported issue here is that universities were told 
not to rely too heavily on international students for income. Australian universities are heavily reliant on the Chinese market and declines to these enrolments could be financially catastrophic. International students pay a much higher amount for their education than domestic students and therefore represent a large amount of a university's income. There have been criticisms that the admission standards, in particular English language skills, have been too lenient. An over-reliance could mean that taxpayers may be forced to contribute to the budget of the higher education sector. In this case, the difficulty for Alan to communicate with his classmates and others was a cause of frustration in his education. Monash University's Vice-Chancellor Peter Darvell defended their policy of accepting foreign students with limited English language capabilities. He stated, We have a pretty high benchmark, actually, compared with a lot of institutions. If that's an element, then of course we'll review all matters of that kind, but I don't think that's a big issue here. International students are more at risk of failing subjects than domestic students, especially where certain assessments require an oral presentation. In some cases, repeated failings and retaking of the same units can extend their degree too long and pass their granted visa period, which can lead to deportation without the university degree being attained. It's unclear whether Alan Jiang was at risk of failing or if he was acing his studies, but he was and is a permanent resident, so he was not at risk of deportation. However, failing does mean a student is required to retake a unit, which means paying for it again. But as we said, it's a minor point to end with, something that's come up, so we thought it best to at least put it out there for people to consider. But we'll finish this case, our last case for the year, on a positive note, as much as you can when factoring in a terrible incident like this. Nurse Administrator Colin Thornby and tutor Bradley Thompson both received Red Cross Community Hero Awards for their assistance in providing first aid. The Australian Awards for University Teaching also acknowledge Dr Lee Gordon-Brown, Alistair Boast, Dr Brett Inder, Andrew Swan, Colin Thornby and Bradley Thompson with awards for their bravery. In 2004, Dr Lee Gordon-Brown and Alistair Boast were awarded the Clark Gold Medal of the Royal Humane Society of Australasia for the most outstanding act of bravery in that year. And in 2005... Dr. Lee Gordon-Brown was awarded the Stanhope Gold Medal. This award recognises the most conspicuous act of gallantry and is the highest Commonwealth award for bravery. And that's it, Chloe, for the case of the Monash University shooting, a very sad, a very terrifying and devastating ordeal with a lot of potential underlying issues. Your thoughts? Yeah, so this case just makes me think of the mental health system and how out of reach services can be to some people and the result of not getting treatment for serious issues and what impact that can have. Alan, to me, obviously had some pretty serious mental health issues that devastatingly led to the death of two people and injuries to many more. The system is so ill-equipped to deal with people that aren't of a certain type of mental illness and that aren't capable of actively seeking out services and support themselves. I've mentioned it before, but there's a Royal Commission into Victorians' mental health system happening right now, and they're looking at everything from access to mental health services, service navigation, and even models of care. And all of those things can be massive barriers to people, and as we can see here, and in a few other cases we've covered, have some pretty horrible consequences. I also feel for the lecturers and uni staff who may have noticed something in the lead up to the shooting, but not known or be equipped of how to refer him or how to intervene. And the bravery of both Alistair and Lee, we've covered it in detail throughout the episode, but wow, to think that fast and do what they did in a moment that would have been beyond stressful, I'm sure their actions made the situation so much better than it could have been. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on the mental health train there. While I'm not pro or anti-gun control or weighing in on the reforms aspect that's reported heavily on this case, I think the mental health aspect is the real issue here. Mm. And as you said, it's such a widely misunderstood issue with a system so under-equipped to deal with these things. I mean, look at what happened at the Thomas Embling Hospital, for example. Um, to me, that's the main cause here. And with the gun issue possibly contributory, the international student thing, you know, there clearly needs to be support mechanisms in place for this and 
This may well be something that's improved in, in the wake of this incident, but not everyone is a good communicator. And there's got to be places and people that others can go to if they're feeling the way Alan was. He was clearly a sick young man who needed help and tragically that boiled over and two people lost their lives. Two families lost their children and many others were physically and mentally impacted for potentially the rest of their lives. So my thoughts go out to them and they also finish right about there. That's all from me. So let's move on to our happy thoughts. Um, do you want me to go first? I think you can go first. You were telling me a little bit about yours and I'm a bit excited to hear it. So Yeah, okay. So I'm going to Tasmania this weekend for my father-in-law's 60th. I'm going to Cradle Mountain specifically. So it's about two hours away from Launceston. It's what I'm going to call an Appalachian mountain range because <laughs> it just looks really picturesque. It's It snowed there last weekend. Um, there are built walking tracks in just above all of the environment so it doesn't ruin it but you can walk through and see everything and there are heaps of wombats if the Instagram hashtag is anything to go by. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's also some pretty good whiskey in Tasmania so I'm pretty excited. Nice, yeah, it'll be exciting. Enjoy yourselves. Hard-earned little break. Hopefully, yeah, it's a whirlwind tour but um, we're going Saturday back Sunday but, you know, yeah, it'll be good. It sounds very magical. The name of it. I don't know why. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Anyway. Hopefully it is. Yeah. What's your happy thought? All right, so here's my happy thoughts. So Christmas songs. As I said to you before, I've never been really into Christmas until probably the last four or five years, you yeah. know, since having kids and getting into a bit more. But right into Christmas songs, we used to listen to Michael Bublé's actually got a really good Christmas <laughs> album that's been yeah. out for years. But one thing I like to get into is the sort of old-timey guys who used to do like full Christmas albums when yep. that was a thing. There's one dude I've been listening to who um, actually my grandfather got me onto. I was very, very young and I haven't listened to much of him since, but yep. I've rediscovered it in the context of this Christmas thing. Bing Crosby, yeah, uh, you know, one of those old school sort of Frank Sinatra type voices, you know, so they do, uh, these dudes do a lot of these awesome old school Christmas songs, really good to just have on in the background while you're pottering around. Um, but I was telling you about songs before we started recording, so I wanted to mention <laughs> Just this. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> All week um, um, with the, the writing of this episode, and I've been writing Lee Gordon Brown's name so many <laughs> times, and there's this song by The Stranglers. <laughs> there's this song by this band, The Stranglers, called um, Golden Brown. <laughs> And it's about, what's it about again? It's about heroin and, heroin. and, and a girl. But all week, the, the you know, if you look it up, you'll know the song. It's that one that goes, golden brown, <laughs> so all week I've been writing Lee Gordon Brown, but singing the golden brown song, Lee Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my little. I think that's more a happy thought for everyone else now that they're going to want maybe have that in their head, but just imagining. I don't think many people would make that association, but I like it. (laughs) Uh, If you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast and find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page links in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. A big thanks to Alyssa for the help with research on this episode. Beyond thorough, Alyssa is with her research. As always. Her and I are working uh, on something big for the new year, so that's going to be good. But this is the final episode we'll be doing this year, uh, except for Patreon. We have a a case updates episode that will be coming out in in a week or so, I think. Yep. So we're taking a break for a couple of reasons. One, because it's Christmas and we want to. Um, (laughs) Sean is moving house, so we're having to change up the audio equipment and how we do things a little bit. So that'll take a little while to set up. Yeah, we'll get that sorted. Uh, Thank you to everyone for your listenership and support throughout our first year it's much appreciated keep it real and don't eat veal that's my catchphrase Chloe I've sorted it it's taken all year but I think it incorporates both of our our personalities keep it real don't eat veal don't you reckon is it is that a catchphrase that's news to me (laughs) I guess on that note we'll run with it for now we'll talk about a new one in the new year (laughs) let's keep brainstorming that one (laughs) thanks everyone thanks bye 
After the Port Arthur massacre in 1996, Prime Minister John Howard, oh, Prime Minister John Howard, he- <laughs> <laughs> after the Port Arthur massacre in 1996, Prime Minister John Howard said, "Oh, geez, I think we nearly really need to look at these gun laws and reforms and do something about it because there's just too many guns." In 1996, following the Port Arthur massacre, Prime Minister John Howard was impersonated by every comedian. <laughs> I, I support eyebrow reform <laughs> on all fronts and uh, something about GST and my tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> International students are more at risk of failing sub- subject. Subject. My name is Sean Connery. That's my sword. That's my sword, laddie. You've had half a beer. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.